It's the Fun and Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, poet and novelist Al Young. Everybody forgets that America was a completely different place in the 40s and 50s, far more progressive place than, than it is now, or is depicted as, as being now. And people were for the people in those days. They figured, you know, I had aunts and uncles who were always, you know, reading some weird paperback on political theory or history or something like that. I grew up like that, where, where you just, anything that came your way, uh, you gobbled it up. Because, yeah. because the, the, we had been told that this was the key. We didn't quite understand how that was the key, but knowing stuff you know, was, <laughs> was the key about, to freedom. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk. Here we engage artists, writers, and musicians in conversations about their lives and work. We have a growing backlog of episodes to catch up with. You can hear conversations with comedian Bucky Sinister, Fresh Air's Amy Sallett, sculptor Al Faro, who is having an opening this month at the Forum in New York City, the 13-year-old electronic musician Henry Plotnick, and singer-songwriter Ken Queter, whose rollicking two-part profile has gotten our biggest response yet. I hear Ken is currently knocking them dead in Portland. Anyway, you can find these episodes through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher, and you can leave me feedback to treasure at our Fun to Know podcast Facebook page, or fun to know podcast at gmail.com, and that's always with the numeral two. On today's show, Professor Al Young. Al Young's credentials are voluminous. Appointed Poet Laureate of California in 2005 by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, no less, Al Young has been honored with fellowships from Guggenheim, Fulbright, and the National Endowment for the Arts. He's won the American Book Award twice. He's written for Rolling Stone and authored many volumes of essays, poems, and five novels, including Sitting Pretty, Snakes, and Seduction by Night. When I mentioned to jazz writer Francis Davis that I'd recorded a conversation with Mr. Young, the first thing he said is, everybody loves Al Young. I was given his essay collection, Drowning in the Sea of Love, back in the 90s and was instantly taken by his musical memoir. Each short essay, centered around various classic recordings, each further illustrating how music weaves itself deeply into the lives of a music lover. Over the years, I'd heard Al appear on various programs on Pacifica Radio's KPFA and found him to be a consistently fascinating and thoughtful guest. The Fun to Know podcast was dreamed up just prior to a trip to the San Francisco Bay Area, and when I wrote up a dream list of Bay Area people I would like to interview, Al Young was at the top of the list. I was delighted when Al cleared space from his active schedule to sit down at my in-law's dining room table for a few hours of conversation, most of which is here. Al couldn't have been more gracious and charming as he discussed his life, his working-class African-American upbringing in Mississippi, joining the migration to Detroit in the 40s, and into the artistic hotbed of New York City in the 1950s. Being that I host a jazz radio show at Princeton's WPRB, Al's recollections spin toward the jazz side as he discusses his friendship with Charles Mingus and being witness to an astonishing number of jazz legends. But if you look closely at almost anything, you can see everything. And Al's reflections on music and the lives around it tell us a lot about the world and life in general. We talk about Lester Young, Louis Armstrong, Eric Dolphy, Coleman Hawkins and the Duke, but we also discuss education, the artistic impulse, and Al's time in Hollywood, working with Poitier, Cosby, and Pryor. Al also reads from his work, which all makes for another epic artist saga here on Fun to Know. We'll start all chronologically here as Al talks about his beginnings in Mississippi. 
your life really follows uh, somewhat of the path of uh, some of the African American music of the 20th century. You were born in Mississippi originally. I was born in Mississippi on the coast, yeah. uh, in Ocean Springs, uh, which is not far from Biloxi and Pascagoula okay. and that whole route that leads to New Orleans. In fact, uh, Mississippians from the Delta and from the hills don't regard uh, coastal Mississippians as being a part of Mississippi, <laughs> a part of uh, Louisiana. Yeah. Because the food and the culture tends to blend like border cultures always do. Yeah, yeah. How long, how long were you there? As a, as uh, a let's see. We went up north. Uh, my dad got out of the Navy, took me up north uh, when I was just about to uh, enter kindergarten. But I never went to kindergarten for some reason uh, <laughs> because I was sent back down south a couple of years later. Uh, so I spent the first... Uh, this time to Laurel, Mississippi, which was more of a, a, a lumber mill town, a more industrial, uh, whereas fishing and military base was was the economy of, of the, the coast. And uh, did return to, uh, to, to Michigan uh, until I was about 10. So roughly my first decade was spent uh, in, in the South and my uh, second decade in Michigan. And then I jumped ship and... Uh, came out to California, but but uh, it, it seems almost ideal to really get this that sort of uh, outdoorsy bucolic uh, you know atmosphere of the South, and then it was amazing. If if, if I were to uh, to write a script uh, for a coming life, forthcoming life, say I'm in infinity wherever we are when we're not in bodies, uh, and I wanted to reincarnate. And to be a writer and all of that who loved music, couldn't have had a better life. Because yeah, I grew up in, in past centuries, because that first, uh, those first few years were spent, uh, a lot of it was spent on uh, my maternal grandparents' farm in uh, southeastern Mississippi, at uh, Clark County, uh, a little village called Pachuda, which still has a population of about 980 people. You can Google it. And... Uh, no running water, no electricity. So I could have been in the 19th century, the 18th, and so forth. So I yeah. got the whole sweep, the whole panorama, <laughs> in a very short time. Wow. Was there was there music in? Oh the, my in God! The sound was there well? ever? Yeah. My yeah. I was born into it. My dad uh, played uh, tuba and he played uh, string bass. You had to play both of those things in those days to hold a job because at night uh, his night job was playing music. He played with a, a band that traveled around. Uh, that region, and they had a radio program on uh, Saturday mornings. It was a 15-minute shows. This was the, back in the days when they had 15-minute sure. radio shows. And I remember we'd all sit around the cathedral-like zenith console, this big, tall <laughs> radio thing with the buttons and all of that. And and I'd put my head to the to the speaker, and I'd, I'd hear my dad back there, you know, on tuba and uh, playing bass. Yeah. And he bought records. My mother would always get frustrated with him because uh, he didn't make very much money. He was uh, an, uh, a motorcycle messenger and and uh, part-time auto mechanic. But uh, when, when he got paid on Saturday, as people did in those days, he got paid in cash, uh, he'd head to the record store. And if nothing else, he would buy at least three you know, RCAs or Bluebirds because you got three for a dollar. And he was very Catholic in his tastes because he wanted he wanted us to hear all kinds of music, and he was interested in in all kinds of music. But he was of a a generation. He was born in nineteen twenty, maybe nineteen twenty, something like that. 
Yeah, I think that was it. Uh, or 1919 or 1920. But uh, it was either hot or sweet, or it was pretty, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and he liked pretty music. He didn't care <laughs> if Tchaikovsky wrote it or if uh, Duke Ellington wrote it. It didn't matter. Just He was looking for, for pretty sounds. Yeah. And in those days, uh, you know, people sang, and everybody in my family eventually played something or tried to do something musically. Mm-hmm. And we didn't even see it as, as doing something musically. It was just a part of, of growing up. I mean, any musically illiterate kid could go to the piano and bang out, you know, some changes and, yeah. and sing something. Um, that sounds, uh, you know, somewhat uh, idyllic, the, yes. uh, the, the world there. Um, but then you made the move to, straight to, was it straight to Detroit? Yeah, well, my dad uh, went straight to Detroit. Um, people generally on that, that southern... Uh, migration route. They went straight up from where they were, you know. So uh, if you were if you were in Mississippi, you went up to uh, Chicago or to Detroit. And he went to Detroit because he saw that there was no future in the South, or he didn't think there was. And uh, he took a job with uh, Chevrolet uh, GM, the Chevrolet division, and stayed there for the rest of his life. Wow. Gave up music. He didn't drink or smoke, <clears throat> and he uh, had seen. Some uh, musical colleagues die young because of their bad habits and yeah. lifestyles. I mean, he was a very interesting man. He was, he was, he, you know, he read the Bible and he was very proud of having become a deacon, you know, in the in the in the, the, the church. And uh, he he was pretty upright, but he had a he had a mean streak too. <laughs> I mean, there were other sides yeah. uh, to him, and which is why my mother ran away from him when. Uh, I was quite young. Hmm. Uh, I have a very complicated family life. Yeah. But, yeah. But but, but uh, at least you were deposited in Detroit, which... Yeah. Oh, Detroit uh, by, was jumping. By that year, I can think of, you know, so many uh, so many musicians that came out of there and uh, so many musicals. And I knew, I knew a lot of them. I mean, uh, I, I went to school with all kinds of... Uh, Louis, Louis Hayes, the drummer, you know. Yeah. Uh, Charles McPherson, Lonnie Hilliard... Uh, all, all part of my record collection. You're friends with Earl Williams, too. Yeah, you? Earl lived down the street. The old, uh, he was the house drummer at the Apollo for years, I know, and a major session musician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah. He married Ruth Brown's sister. Yeah. Yeah, and they moved to Brooklyn. That's the kind of personal stories. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, such a big music collector. <laughs> I know all the names, but uh, it's exciting to find out where they intertwine. But I didn't realize how close I was to jazz's origins. You know, when you're growing up, you, you think of your parents as just being ancient, but then later when you start to compare those years, the, the gap, to where you are now, you realize you were very close to things that were happening. You know, yeah. capitalism. You, you were actually a DJ. At yes, yes. Too, yeah, among your yeah, many yeah. Uh, jobs that you've held. Where was that at? It started in, uh, started in Detroit. It started, uh, I had a buddy named Leon Reynolds, Leon McKinley Reynolds, because we had imaginary radio stations. His was uh, WLMR for his initials, and mine was... <laughs> Uh, WYSO for Young Sound, no, WYSS for Young Sound Studios, meaning we lived a couple of blocks from each other on Edison Street in Detroit, and we had upstairs rooms, and uh, we rigged up red lights on our doors with signs that said, <laughs> do not enter when, you know, on the air, that kind of thing. And we had Wollenzak tape recorders. We were both paper boys, and so we made, we made pretty good money. And um, somehow we got these reel-to-reel Wollenzaks, which really how, how we'd play our stuff and sometimes we'd record shows and you know when you're 
15, 14, 15 years old, you're into it. You're not playing. This is real. You know, the phone would ring and say, hey, stop that. We're, we're on the air. <laughs> uh, and uh, we would go uh, in the later years in high school, I'd say 10th and 11th grade, Somehow, I don't know how we got past our parents, but we'd go and visit DJs that we admired in downtown Detroit radio stations. And uh, these were usually guys in their 20s, maybe early 30s. And they were amused by us because we would type up, we'd take the yellow pages and we'd find places that we wanted to sponsor us. Buddy's Barbecue, which was kind of a hip place. You know, <laughs> Kenny Burrell took his girlfriends there on Sunday. And we'd write up copy, you know, advertising copy and do ads and so forth. Uh-huh. And, and we had portfolios and all that. <laughs> and um, I started doing it there. I got on, uh, from a fairly early age, the public radio station there, which in those days they called educational radio station. Uh-huh. And it was WDET, which is the Wayne State station to this day. It's the NPR station in, uh, in Detroit. And um, they had programs with titles like Youth Wants to Know or The Teenage Perspective. <laughs> and so, you know, you got a lot of practice with that. I'm still, still, I'm still have my head stuck in Detroit. Okay. I'm curious what, uh, you know, what kind of bands you could see uh, going out you know, in a night in Detroit when you were, when you were young. Leon and I were hustlers. Uh, we had uh, press passes. There was a, a newspaper... Um, I think it was called the Detroit Chronicle. And <laughs> like you own this town. <laughs> yeah, and it was a it was a Christian Science uh, oriented newspaper that was run by the uh, trucking company. What's it called? Uh, something uh, True True Hove True Half. Anyway, Fruhoff Fruhoff Trucking Company. <laughs> but for some reason, they put their money into an African American uh, newspaper that was. Detroit-based, and they wanted a teenage perspective. So they had a column that they would run once a week, and Leon would do it one week, and I'd do it the other week. They paid $5 you know, uh, for a 700-word column. You could write on anything you wanted. And we got press passes. Wow. And press passes were highly respected in those days. You flash a press pass, particularly if it was laminated, and you could get in anywhere. <laughs> and we would go to uh, Jazz at the Philharmonic... Um, uh, presentations when they came to town. Um, we couldn't get into clubs because we were underage. Yeah. Uh, we could get into places like the World Stage, which was uh, a Monday night event that took place across the border in Highland Park, uh, north of, of Detroit, uh, in a, a building that also most of the time served as at, uh, a theater company, uh, Theater in the Round. Uh, that's why it was called World Stage. Mm-hmm. But on Monday nights, which was the off night for most of the musicians, they'd have concerts uh, or sets, and uh, kids could come because there was no alcohol, and mm-hmm. it was sponsored by something called the New Music Society. And that, was, that gives you the idea of how people were thinking about jazz and all of that in those days. They were thinking pretty high-tone ways. They were thinking of it as a, a classical music, which, lo and behold, it eventually became, and it never occurred to anybody. You didn't really want to become classicized uh, too, too quickly. Yeah. But uh, I would catch Yusuf Latif, uh, you name it, all of the Jones brothers. Year, yeah, Paul Chambers, uh, uh, Donald Byrd. Donald Byrd went to Northern High School, which was a walk. It was like 
couple of miles from where we live. We, we walked everywhere. And we walk over there across Woodward uh, from our high school, Central High School. And we knew what time he practiced, you know, because he was a hot shot in, in the band over there. And we just stand outside the house there and just listen to him. You know, and sometimes I think Leon, in those days to record anybody, you had to really be resourceful. But I, somehow or other, Leon got his Wollensock over there and got it plugged into something and was able to get, you know, get some of that. In fact, I wish I had some of those reel-to-reels from those days. But uh, I have friends from Wilmington, Delaware. They hung outside of uh, Clifford Brown's house and recorded Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, so we weren't the only ones. Uh, in the meantime, I'm in class with, uh, in school with, you know, Aretha Franklin and Frida Payne was in there and... What was, what was young Aretha like? I've written about her. Uh, there's a piece you'll find online in Salon. It's called, uh, let's see, it's called Respect. And it's, it's uh, about how my mother almost married Aretha Franklin's father. Yeah, the, the great uh, reverend. The infamous C.L. Franklin. C.L. Yeah. Franklin. Uh, infamous. Well, well, you know, he, he, all kinds of things would happen to his church. He'd get busted sometimes for cocaine possession or something. Uh-huh. Wasn't bad and I would go to the congregation and say, in order to tell you about evil and sin, <laughs> I have to experience it. You know, and that kind of, they loved him. Yeah. I mean, it was just amazing. He knew all the showbiz people. Yeah, I know that was a real social, uh, yeah. you know, hub, his, 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 his church and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, my sister, I have a younger sister who was close to Aretha, and she figures into the piece. They used to go skating oh, really? uh, together because Aretha was a little younger than, than I was. Uh-huh. But when she does something like uh, day, daydreaming, mm-hmm. you can tell she's got a jazz background. I mean, oh, yeah, you can sit down and knock that stuff out. <laughs> Same thing with Stevie Wonder. He, yeah. You know, because it, it was kind of seamless in those days. The, uh, I did a long, long, long interview, which I've got to bring out somewhere. It's 50,000 words almost. I can't believe they let me do that. Uh, for uh, the San Diego Reader on Charles McPherson. And Charles, in, in one uh, point, we're talking about these days because he went to Northern High School. And high schools were zones. You know, these were different, uh, uh, different war fronts, if you want to look at it competitively. And uh, Charles says, yeah, he says, I remember those days, man. He said, uh, you could divide it up. By what people consumed. I say, what do you mean? He says, well, the people that, that, that like to drink, you know, that bad wine and get their heads bad, they always wanted to fight when they got loaded and everything. He said, now, the people who, who smoked weed, you know, or who didn't t- have anything at all, they wanted peacefulness. They wanted uh, something nice to happen. And when they got loaded, they wanted to play. Like, you probably want to write when you, you know, that kind of thing. So he had things divided up into... You know, different societies or substrata, (laughs) uh, even then. So you ended up leaving Detroit, I guess, uh, pretty soon into adulthood, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I turned uh, 21 out here. Oh. Yeah, I came out here in the summer of 1960 
Uh, and I had just, I was on the verge of turning 21. That's the way that deal went. And uh, when I went back to Ann Arbor in my senior year in Michigan, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand the cold. I couldn't stand anything that was going on there. Yeah. And uh, I couldn't wait to get back out here. I had lived in New York for a while, and New York was just too dense and too fast and too weird for a Midwestern <laughs> kid. But uh, California was was just the right pace. Everything was was perfect. You had some adventures though in in, in New York City. It's oh like, yeah, so you were you were a folk singer at that point. Yeah, yeah. Did you record it all? Uh, there there are recordings there are recordings that are turning up of me in fact I was listening to one the other day it was recorded at the Oakland Folk Festival in 1960 and I couldn't believe how good I sounded (laughs) I said I could play like that in those days yeah uh, the folk thing I came in about about the time I went up to Michigan yeah you played guitar yeah uh, who was who inspired the uh, you know the folk side of you I had been listening to a lot of things before I had gone up to Michigan. I had a buddy named Bob Mates, who's dead now, and Bob was Bob's family was one of the last uh, Jewish families to abandon the area that was populated increasingly by black people. That's the, that's the pattern you get. You get uh, Goyim moving out of an area, and the Jews coming in, and then yeah. the Jews move out, and the, and the blacks move in, and so forth. <laughs> And uh, his family was an old left-wing family. In fact, his father was uh, some kind of a big official in the Communist Party and was always on the run or hiding out and stuff like that. And I was kind of titillated by that, even though this was the heart of the McCarthy era. Yeah, yeah. At any rate, uh, in no time, I learned just an awful lot of stuff. Yeah, I was curious what's in your repertoire. Uh, well, I don't know. One of my buddies, Perry Letterman, who was a wonderful guitarist, at whom I was revisiting last night by recording, uh, he helped to get some of that flashy Josh White stuff out of my playing. You know, uh-huh. uh, Josh White would do all those little guitar licks that let you know that he knew the neck and could get up, all of this fancy stuff. And Perry, who was from Brooklyn, Say, Al, you know, you, you, you're going to be a good player, but you got to get all that, all that stuff out of there. I said, what? <laughs> you know, all that flashy stuff. That's a, you might think that's... I used to play like that, and you got to get that out of there. <laughs> and then I understood, because uh, the best players, you know, don't show off like that. Yeah, they refine it to... Uh, yeah. 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 Did you, were you connected to Felix Papillardi? Did I hear that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, we had a band. Um uh, called Washtenaw County String Stretchers uh, for about six months there. Uh, Felix was quite a character. He played trumpet, he played uh, clarinet, and he also played bass, which he was best known for. And he was very ambitious. He was very handsome. Uh, at one point, uh, we were dating the same uh, young woman, a painter, named Lois Cajola, who's now named Lois Campbell and lives up uh, on Orcas Island, um, <laughs> you know, off of, off of uh, Seattle. And uh, she painted a, she did a painting of uh, the two of us. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, 
at one point I owned it, but I put it away because I was I met the woman that I was going to marry, who was uh, a little nervous about stuff like that, and I've never been able to find it again. Oh, what a shame! Y- yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, Papillardi, I think he produced uh, some records for Fred Neal. Oh yeah, Cream and all of that. He, cream, yeah, he became very huge. For cream, yeah, yeah. He became the person he always wanted to be and always acted. As though he were, you know, back when I met him in the late fifties, and his sad end uh, really still troubles me. Yeah, yeah, I believe. Uh, his... And for listeners who are wondering, what was that sad? And his wife shot him. Yeah, yeah. She just passed away, I believe, recently. That yeah, made the, made the news. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was having an affair, and he was losing his uh, his sense of hearing down towards the end oh, really? from uh, being exposed to some. Yeah, Cream was legendary yeah. for being a really loud band. Yeah, yeah, and it was, it was sad to read about that. <clears throat> so, so uh, it seems like you made a choice at some point between the the singing and the writing. I was doing a gig, uh, and I'd gotten just gotten married, nineteen sixty three, and I had gigs. I had a gig over at the coffee gallery, which was kind of illustrious in North Beach, and it was a one night or two night a week gig. And I remembered my father. My father said he hated clubs because he didn't smoke, he didn't drink, and people were always talking and all of that kind of stuff. And he loved music, and uh, he just would rather not be there. So um, I'd be playing, and there's always some drunk who wants to hear Melancholy Baby and all that kind of stuff. And I remembered what he had said, and I was writing all the time, and I thought, well, you know, writing is... You can mail it in. You don't have to actually be there. And, <laughs> and that's, I, I made a conscious choice that either go that route, because I'd reached the point where you know people had started to ask about making recordings and how serious are you about this. Yeah. And I decided I, I liked the contemplative uh, life. Well, maybe this is, is time to, to, to get to the, the Mingus uh section of of your life okay. because because he uh, I know he was uh, somewhat supportive of you as a writer yes yeah yes Mingus was Mingus was perhaps even more multifaceted than uh, I think of my generation as as having been uh, because he, he he wrote and he drew and uh, beneath the underdog his, his yeah. biography yeah uh, one of the great you know i thought so too <laughs> i did the uh i did the, the rolling stone review of that they, oh, they, really? they in those days i was i was uh one of the book reviewers for rolling stone and they would let me go on and on and on and i went on and on and on with that one but the uh the, the blurb that survives in the, the penguin paperback now it just says Rolling Stone, but that was me. Oh, yeah. What's the blurb say? Do you remember? Uh, uh, I think it opens with some, a line like, "This book is the purest of dynamite," or something like that. <laughs> Bouncing off the phrase of the day, which was "pure dynamite." <laughs> so you were you were already quite a fan of him when you. When oh you yeah, I had discovered him, yeah. Mingus when I was in uh, junior high, mm-hmm. in about the seventh or eighth grade. There was a record store. T- I describe it down the street from us, uh, Mel's, run by a blonde named Angie. And uh, it was hip. She had all the hip stuff. Mm-hmm. And she had those early debuts. Those, those, uh, His own record The 78s, the 45s, and the 10-inch albums. Wow. Which is the company that uh, Mingus started with Max Roach, uh, just to ensure that 
experimental or um, unestablished musicians would have a place to record. Yeah, and and, and forward looking to really take uh, control of the yeah. you know the production of it in that way. Yeah, yeah Mingus was always talking about that. I always liked the, I always liked the way he talked about the uh, the brothers over in New Jersey. Uh, I mean, they were siblings. Uh, oh, who would that be? The, the sound guys. Rudy Van Gelder? It, uh, Van Gelders. The Van you. Gelders. Uh, there's a 1964 recording of Mingus uh, being interviewed on KPFA. And he... Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. The yeah. writer. Uh, yeah. Philip Elwood. Yeah, Philip Elwood. That's right. He says, um, what do you think about the... the How'd you like that Van Gelder sound? He says, man, I hated that. He says, they take, you, they take the way you sound and make it sound the way they want it to sound. He says, and they're always twisting these knobs, man. Why can't they just leave them alone? Just set the level, you know? And he said, I got a record company. We don't, have, we don't fiddle with the knobs and all of that. And it was very funny. Yeah, I mean, they, they did, uh, I can see where that's a very popular sound uh, still, that sound of that fan, that. Uh, yeah. Van Gelder Studios and Blue Note, but it, it is a very specific sound as well. And it's one that when you're an adolescent, as I was when that sound came out, I was in the you know, formative adolescent years, uh, what you hear is that treble at one end and you hear the bass at the other end. And so we would configure our, our amplifiers uh, so that you got heavy bass, and heavy trouble, <laughs> and we didn't pay much attention to what, what went in between. The midtones, yeah, yeah midtones. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so you 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 first met him in in New York. Yes, <laughs> met him in New York. In fact, uh, went directly, sought him out. Uh, I was seventeen, I think, and I just found out he was playing at working at this place called the Showcase. Just went over there. <clears throat> and uh, I could pass for 18 in those days. You're a tall, tall man, right? Yeah, you had to be 18 in New York uh, mm-hmm. at that time, and I could, I could do that, but I couldn't do 21, you know, in, in Michigan. <laughs> and so I could get into clubs, and he got me in and gave me a special table because I knew about stuff that he was shocked. I knew about Mingus Fingus, for example. Now the uh, old uh, Lionel Hampton tune? Yeah, and the deal with Lionel Hampton... My mother knew uh, uh, Lionel Hampton's wife, uh, Gladys, who was really the boss. She ran everything. I talked to Jimmy Scott once, and he, he mentioned that. Yeah. That it was really Gladys that was running the show. Yeah, and uh, the deal was uh, anything you wrote, if you were a side person with the, Mingus, uh, with the uh, Hampton band, uh, he got the composer credit. Oh, yeah. You know, that was just the deal. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's attributed to... Uh, to the two of them, yeah. But you know, he had nothing to do with it. Mingus's piece, yeah, obviously. Yeah, it's like um, Chuck Berry and Hail Hail Rock and Roll. Yeah. That little, there's a d- delightful sequence in there with uh, Bo Diddley, Little Richard, and Chuck Berry, and they're talking about the business. Yeah, yeah. And, Which wasn't uh, kind of <laughs> any <laughs> of them. Yeah, and, and Chuck <laughs> Berry says. Well, I knew who wrote Maybelline because there was nobody else in the room but me. <laughs> he said, but when the record came out, there were three or four names on there, and, and they were all you know Jewish names. Yeah. And so, Little Richard in that sequence, and oh, 
you're fixing to talk about my people now and I'm not going to tolerate that because he just converted to Judaism, you know. It's a hilarious sequence. Yeah, boy, I mean, little Richard, I think, well, he was paid $50, $50 or yeah. something for Tutti Frutti. Like, unbelievable. But, uh, but I got to hand it to Richard. Uh, when he went to the... Uh, he, he made me late for a plane once in London because he was on the BBC and I can just listen to him forever because okay. he's, he's quite a raconteur. <laughs> but uh, uh, they would bring him out every year to... Uh, Blow open the envelopes to, to announce the <clears throat> the uh, gra- Grammys and all of that. And one year, he opened up the envelope and he said, "And the winner is." And before I go on, I have to say something to y'all. He says, "Y'all ain't never give me nothing. <laughs> Yet you see, you claim I'm the king of rock and roll, you know." And the next year, he got everything. So he yeah. he knew how to you know apply pressure. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I I went through a, you know a whole rock and roll phase myself yeah. with all those originators and those special recordings from Little Richard and the chess recordings from Chuck Berry, uh, you know just seminal you know mind expanding work. Did uh, you ever read his his, his uh, memoir, his autobiography, uh, Little Richards? Yeah, no, I it's one of the one of the greatest. Oh, if you think Mengus is was, was good, <laughs> I mean because he's he's so true to himself with sections that reads after the manner of. Yes, I had left uh, showbiz and I was preaching in a church and I was supposed to be all cleaned up, but I really wasn't. <laughs> and he says, and I knew my mother knew it and I didn't want her to see me because she can tell what I'm up to just at first glance. And he just goes back and forth, all of his you know, schizophrenia and yeah. ambivalence and so forth. He's just perfectly honest about it. Amazing figure. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I think they're both still here, Chuck Berry and Little Richard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, not Chuck Berry so much. Chuck Berry is is after the manner of um, James Brown. That is, he's a businessman, yeah. you know, performer. Mm-hmm. That that wonderful sequence uh, uh, at the beginning of that movie, "Hail Hail Rock and Roll," when Bruce Springsteen is t- is describing mm-hmm. how Chuck Berry pulls up, you know, just before the gig, <laughs> comes in to work with this band that he hasn't worked with before. And they have to pay him afterwards, and he gets in the car and drives off into the night. Uh, he's that kind of guy. Whereas Richard was a guy who didn't read contracts or anything. Yeah. Uh, he once told uh, Ed Bradley in a 60-minute uh, segment how he was sleepless in the early days of his of touring. And so Ed says, why, were you, why, why couldn't you get enough sleep? He says, oh, man. He says, I'll give you an example. He says, we were playing at the, uh, the Apollo and I was standing across the street at the Teresa Hotel, and he said, I would get up, man, about every 35, 40 minutes and just pull back the shade and look at the marquee out there. Peering now, little Richard. He says, I couldn't get over it, man. So he said, it would break up my sleep. And next day, I'd need more rest, you know, that kind of thing. That's amazing. Um, Mingus, let's get let's back to Mingus. your, your uh, connection with him, though. You... Uh, in New York at that time, I mean, must have New York been. at that time was 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 quite the wonderland. It was um, the heyday of the abstract expressionist still, and mm-hmm. uh, the beat thing was still uh, making itself heard. And what everybody forgets about New York in the '40s and '50s is that it was the painters who set the pace for things. The painters were listening to jazz. And they were trying to capture that spirit because that's where the real radical, uh, unquenchable uh, inspiration came from. And uh, 
the writers were tagging along for the ride. They, they, they were third, mm-hmm. in third place. And they were trying to combine what the... This is an Al Young view, by the way. They were trying to combine what the... That's what I'm here to hear. Yeah, <laughs> what the painters and, and the uh, mus- musicians were doing. Yeah. And so that's... Oh, on the road, I mean, it's, it's, it's always held up as being yeah. you know, thoroughly influenced by jazz. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. so it was an exciting period, and I was I had a finger and a toe and all of that stuff, and Mingus recognized that, mm-hmm. and I showed him stuff that I was writing, which I'm embarrassed about now. But <laughs> he uh, he wrote me a note that said, and I, either Janet has it or I have it somewhere in my archives. It says you've probably written the same way for a million years. Uh, um, I didn't know it at the time, but Mingus was a Hindu. You know, he later revealed this uh, when he died his widow took his ashes back and uh to deposit you know in the ganges which was by request oh, wow. but he had had an experience when he was around the age that i was when i met him i think he was 17 years old and he was living in mill valley well um, with farwell taylor who's a painter avant-garde painter uh who had taken in this kind of wayward teenager who wanted to do music, and Mingus was also interested in painting and, and writing as well. But he was practicing yoga in those days, and he had gotten to the point where he he could hold his breath, you know, indefinitely, and claims to have looked into death, which uh, frightened him for the rest of his life. That's the story he tells anyway. Yeah. But he was, he was just, he was just the perfect talismanic avuncular figure uh, for us in those days, and and Janet and I had separate relationships with him at first. Uh, as you saw in the book, he had, he told me that he wanted me to help him write this book, and then a night later he had told Janet that she would get the job, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but it was just very exciting to be around somebody who was that immersed in different kinds of artistic expression. Yeah, you tell a very interesting story in, in, in the uh, book about uh, a, a uh, videotaped role-playing... Uh, oh, yeah, I'm so and, mad. I'm really still mad with Ann McIntosh, who died last year, uh-huh. uh, who had the first video cam that we had ever seen. She was a very wealthy um, person from, Mar- from Maryland aristocracy, a descendant of George Washington. And... Uh, we used to sit around in uh, her living room, uh, which was like a studio, uh, and on the west side, uh, Lord, New York, 23rd Street, West 23rd Street. And um, we would make up, just set the camera up and just make up things. Uh, and Mingus uh, came over there. He had been having an affair with Anne, actually. And... Uh, at one point, uh, we had him playing this Eskimo revolutionary, you know, that was going to rise up and chase all of the capitalists out of the <laughs> and the dope dealers out of the out of the the system. And she got mad with Mingus, and she destroyed the tape. Aye. And Janet and I have never forgiven her for that because we 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 you know we used to tell her you know that, that could have been our meal ticket for the rest of our lives. <laughs> It uh, sounds fascinating. Yeah, the, the, but Mingus was interested in acting. And do you know that album, um, what's it called? Ecclesiastics. Yeah. Okay, he's got a, a track on there down towards the end. Atlantic pushed it way to the second side down at the end called uh, 
Passions of a Man, mm-hmm. in which you hear Mingus uh, sounding like someone who's trying to dramatize nonsense. And he was actually trying to project uh, the, the, the sense of acting without use, using specific language uh, to nail it down, just utterance, just you know, vocalistics. It's quite an interesting track. Well, I'm going to have to pull that out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Would you mind reading uh, one of the short pieces here? I have a nice short one sure. on the uh, uh, pork pie hat. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, you know, the Mingus tune that was written for uh, Lester Young after yes. his passing. Goodbye, Pork Pie Hat. Charles Mingus, 1959. Jeff Beck, 1975. Joni Mitchell, 1979. Yes, that was sadness you saw shining out of Lester's lidded eyes upturned beneath that pork pie hat. But what manner of sadness? Was it the sadness of New Orleans trumpet legend King Oliver in his December years, where we find him selling fruit and vegetables from a roadside truck for a living? Could it be anything like the bittersweet sadness of the overlooked boppa ranger and pianist Tad Dameron dialing B for beauty on an old French telephone at Fontainebleau, who early abandoned a medical career because he thought the world was sorely in need of beauty? And what about the sumptuous sadness of Coleman Hawkins, inventor of jazz saxophone, and colorist and shaper of horn poems. No, the sadness you heard was Lester's alone. Charles Mingus captured it in Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. Jeff Beck picked up on it, and Joni Mitchell recites and recounts it as best she can in mere words. But Lester, of course, is himself the source, a musical force that gave the world so much loving sound that it still hurts play his final recordings, or to remember how pitifully wasted he was during those declining jazz at the Philharmonic concert years, when much of his exuberance and genius had fled him, when everything that he had to say on his horn sounded like variations on sighs of resignation. Whatever became of all that wondrous discourse that used to pour and trickle and skeet out of him like light from some heavenly reservoir? New Orleans? Kansas City, New York, the world, like youthful fame and stamina, the past must have seemed a dream to him as he willfully let himself go. Prez, the president who never campaigned for any office, was resigned by then as only genius can be resigned. Weary of telling his story this way and that, night after night, flight upon flight, climbing, descending, He was ready to step aside and do his brooding in private. His eyes were sad with gin and what it drowns. We fish who swam his ocean keep him young. I used to lie and say he was a distant cousin. 
but it was true. <laughs> I love that final line. Well, great piece. Um, have you ever seen Lester Young? Did you ever? Yeah, watch yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, in fact, that's where it's, uh, the, the flavor of that. One of those jazz at the Philharmonic concerts in the late fifties. Uh, that was, I guess, he was living in Paris at the time where he made that interview, uh, which I know by heart. Uh, but we were just astounded. We were high school kids, and we'd gotten uh, seats pretty much close to the stage so we could see what was going on. And Dizzy Gillespie was in the lineup, and Stan Getz, and I think Roy Eldridge. It was just one of those JATP, just yeah. everybody that Norman Grants could get. I always laugh when I go back over uh, Quincy Troop's uh, rendering of Miles Davis's autobiography and uh, those pages where Miles is turning down a JATP, a Jazz and Philharmonic tour, because he looked at the, the lineup and he says, uh-uh, too many people, except he didn't say people, he used, <laughs> he used the MF word, too, too many on the lineup, on, on the program, and uh-uh, can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but there was Lester who had to be prodded each time when it was time for him to play and mm-hmm. you know they, they were treating him like a, a child who uh, they loved him but he was just drunk you know? <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was dr- and we, we looked at that and we thought is this the way you have to be to be a jazz musician but of course not everybody in that lineup was like that and so yeah. the answer was right there but yeah, I guess somewhere in there is inspiration that sort of uh, was lost from from uh, from Lester, and and as, as an artist, you continue to to write and, and continue to have a claim all along the way. Uh, what do you think of that, you know, mysterious thing, inspiration? Uh, inspiration is is exactly what it's what it what the word uh, signals uh, something to breathe in that that frees you that uh, inspires you as it were, and uh, in that 40 minute, is it 40 minutes? About 38 minutes of interview. Uh, the interview took place in April of 1959, as I recall. And uh, Lester is bitter, and you're trying to get at his bitterness. And uh, I've listened to that thing so many times that I've, I practically know it by heart. And it was the music business. Uh, there, at one point he says, you know, <clears throat> Norman lets Yardbird record with strings and all kinds of stuff. He won't let me record with no strings. You know, but I got a thing coming up with the, the Hamburg Symphony, you know, and uh, would people be uh, a little upset if they heard that I was playing, uh, you know, uh, English horn or oboe and stuff? Yeah, I've been playing those. I can play those, that kind of thing. But they don't record me doing that. They just always have me doing, you know, uh, the usual Lester Young stuff. So I think he was—he had outgrown the box that people had put him in. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was living in Europe because he rejected the United States. He says, it, he says in, in America, man, you, they, always, they want you got to be Uncle Tom or Uncle Sam or somebody's uncle. And I, just, I just can't do it, man. I just, I just got tired of it. It's, um, I think people have no idea of the indignities that a, an African-American musician, even of his stature, suffered, uh, had to endure in those days. Yeah, it's excruciating to think about. Yeah, and they knew that they were, they knew they were, they knew they were great. They were world class. Yeah, but they weren't treated <laughs> that way. Yeah. 
And one of the things that, uh, this is a personal observation, uh, I think that one of the things that people like the Wolf Brothers, you know, the, uh, the, the founders of Blue Note, mm-hmm. Jewish uh, or uh, Russian Jewish or, or Jewish immigrants, uh, German Jewish immigrants to America who got into jazz uh, production, is that they were able to convey to the American musicians that what they were playing was art music. It was not music that was strictly for entertainment. Yeah. And that's what made Bop people so difficult and hard to get along with. It's like my barber, who, uh, Jim Marks, who's a drummer and poet, he told me one day, he said, you know, man, I decided, Al, I'm going to get me a blues band, get rid of my jazz band. And I said, why are you going to do that? Just because blues people, man, you got to watch the whiskey, you know, and stuff like that. But he says, every jazz person in my band thinks he's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, I'm the genius. You, know, <laughs> um, you talked about uh, Lester living in, in, uh, in Paris. Europe. Yeah. yeah. Talk about the expatriate pool for musicians from that time. I mean, you spent a, a fair amount of time in Europe, too, from yeah. what I understand. Yeah. The, it started way back at the beginning of the century, you know, with James Reese Europe uh, and that band that he brought over to France. World War One, they got the jazz bug and they just never got over it, and it was just an amazing uh, phenomenon. I spent a lot of time studying jazz under the Nazis. Uh, there's several good books uh, on that, and of course, Goebbels and Hitler and the whole Nazi uh, hierarchy—they condemned jazz. As, they did not swing. Right. It was it was a, a decadent bourgeois. Uh, music and a, a conspiracy that was foisted on the world by what they called, uh, in not so polite language, uh, the nigger kike uh, alliance. Mm-hmm. You know, the Benny Goodmans and the Duke Ellingsons and all of this. Yeah. And yet, when uh, SS officers, jazz had been really popular in Germany before the advent of, of the Nazi, uh, the ascendancy of the Nazi party, and uh, particularly swing music and dance music and all of that. And uh, a lot of that is documented in a film called uh, Swing Kids. Yeah. Yeah, they, which they, I'm sure you've seen. The Disney kind of musical uh, version of the, the story of the... Uh, yeah. Over there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yet when SS officers were at, 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 at approaching a, a Jewish residence uh, to take the inhabitants away... Uh, if they had been jazz fans, uh, they would, and they saw Louis Armstrong records in the house, or mm-hmm. uh, they would give them a chance to get away. I mean, jazz was still seen as kind of a uh, music of liberation, of some kind. Yeah. So that uh, when their the Nazis' most celebrated uh, fighter pilot would come back from a successful mission, uh, they would give a big special meal for him and bring a great jazz band in to play for him. And so they were hypocrites, you know, about <laughs> yeah. that. But uh, jazz is, is, uh, was very forceful in those days. And after World War II, when uh, we came up with Voice of America, you know, you had Willis Conover, uh, who was the, the residing DJ and lecturer and I met people in the 1960s and 70s and 80s in Europe 
jazz musicians, European jazz musicians, who said they loved the Voice of America. They, they would completely ignore all the propaganda and talk, and they would have their tape recorder set to, you know, to record the music. That's how they learned, they learned to play. But our government at that time understood how powerful yeah. a, a cultural force uh, jazz was. And, um, you know, they, they underwrote uh, tours by the jazz greats, Louis Armstrong in particular. And, yeah, he was the world ambassador. Yeah. yeah. In fact, Armstrong uh, was, was so successful in that role that he got to know Eisenhower on a, on a, a familiar basis. You could call him Ike. And mm-hmm. you may know about this. He wrote a letter to him uh, around 1950, maybe 1952. And he said, Dear Ike, you know... Uh, I would like to recommend that the government push uh, marijuana uh, as a, you know, a, a relaxant. I've been using it for years, and you know, it's it's not it doesn't make you crazy like alcohol and all of this. And of course, Ike turned the letter over to Edgar Hoover, and they and they and they, they followed him. They put uh, Armstrong under surveillance. Yeah, he really uh, yeah. proselytized about uh, the the great uh, you know effects of marijuana. I know that was a big part of his life. But the Europeans and the Japanese and, and the foreign audiences uh, appreciated the, the older cultures that understand culture a little bit more intuitively than Americans do. Uh, they. Like Duke Ellington, he's, he excused all of the excesses in his band by saying that in order to be creative and artistic, uh, there, you've got to have some wild sides and <laughs> weird things. So he would just look the other way and tolerate them until they got out of hand. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, in America, you know, we're still puritanical. Mama don't allow, you know, that, that kind of culture. <laughs> and so uh, musicians and writers and others, uh, not just African-Americans, always found that they could work better when they got away from uh, American constraints and yeah. expectations and disrespect for the arts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like everything is, is, is sort of in that commercial framework kind yeah. of thing. And they, they can't see the arts uh, use or, or, or its necessity outside of that commercial yeah. framework in a lot of ways. Well, you look at these audiences. I was, I was uh, passing on a link, a YouTube link, uh, the other day from... 1960, which was the same year that uh, Mingus had that, that famous band with Eric Dolphy and mm. uh, Booker Irwin, and, and uh, they're in Europe, they're in Germany, and uh, what's his name, Ted Curson is on trumpet, yeah. uh, and Bud Powell is on piano, he brought, oh, he yeah. brought Bud in, uh, uh, because they were in, in France, and the audience is just dense, and they're just so excited, and it's all kinds of people. It's young, and it's old, and it's well-dressed and skimpily dressed, and uh, there's even, even some teenagers dancing to uh, uh, the Mingus band, which was you wouldn't think of as being a, a danceable band. But it, it, you know that you're not in the United States when you look at this. Yeah. And you can tell uh, by the exuberance of the musicians that they're... They're being appreciated. Sure. sure. You know, people are listening to the music.
I've, I've uh, read just about everything I can get my hands on about Eric Dolphy, but yeah. you, you have actually, you did actually meet him. Over yeah, there. yeah, yeah. I met, him, I met Eric um, many times because he and Barry Harris uh, hung together and uh, they were at a place that was near the five spot. In the daytime, they'd have uh, lunch there, at, uh, maybe at around four o'clock in the afternoon, and read the the, the racing forms. Yeah, that was. That was <laughs> a, I heard you wrote about that. That's one side of Eric Dolphy I never heard. Yeah, of. Yeah. It's almost saintly in his portrayal. So yeah. many times, but he was he was a fan of the races. Yeah, and there's a there's a piece that I should get into circulation. It's, it's hidden somewhere in a file cabinet that I have in storage. But uh, Lorenzo Thomas and I were in Paris in 1990. 1990 or 1991, the occasion was a celebration of uh, Richard Wright at the Sorbonne, and uh, there were thousands of Americans, African Americans, who came over for that. And uh, at one point, Lorenzo invited me to join him on uh, a pilgrimage to Eric Dolphy's last residence in France, uh, which was over uh, across the river in... uh, uh, well, I won't get caught up in what part of Paris it was, <laughs> but it was right across the street from a jazz record shop, and it had been the, the, the actual apartment building that he had lived in <clears throat> had been torn down, and uh, this high-rise thing was going up. And three things happened at once. We're we're standing there looking at this, and and uh, Lorenzo was writing a book on Eric Dolphy. He died before he finished it, and I'd like to know what happens to the pages. But uh, he's taking notes and photograph. Uh, there's an old-fashioned Frenchman from right out of the Hollywood casting. <laughs> <clears throat> this guy must have been around 90. He had on a beret. He was on a bicycle. And sticking up out of the basket, on the back of the bike, baguette. was a bottle of wine and a baguette. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. And he was in the Communist Party. And he saw these two black guys, black Americans out there, and he was curious. And he came and talked with us. We were telling him about this great musician who lived there, Eric Dolphy. And uh, he was telling us how Paris was going down, that you know the, the, the poor people and the working people had to live outside of town because you had to be either an international spy or a dope dealer or something in order to afford Paris and all these new places. So the people in the uh, record shop, man and a woman, they were curious about the scene we were making out there. And so they came out to ask, and uh, we explained to them that Eric Dolphy lived across. Eric Dolphy! You see, man? Eric Dolphy! And they get on the telephone and start calling people because they didn't know that, and there they are with the jazz record store. Wow. You know, uh, uh, and so Lorenzo wrote, uh, he wrote a, a, a page about that, but it's one of those 8 by 14 sheets, and so it's really it's quite meaty. With, uh-huh. And uh, this all happened before digitization. And uh, I put it away in a file somewhere, and I haven't been able to find it since because I'd like to... I can write my version of it, but I like the way that he wrote it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Al, I'd 
love it if you could read a piece about the uh, phenomenal Coleman Hawkins uh, sure. recording of Body and Soul. Body and Soul, Coleman Hawkins, 1939. My father, who used to bicycle 30 miles one way to court my mother, had this record among his dust-needled 78s. He'd already worn out several copies before I learned to love it from memory, never knowing until much later what a cause it had stirred. Imagine it's 1939. You talk about a hell-raising year, that one had to take the cake, with Hitler taking Czechoslovakia, Bohemia, Moravia, and Poland, with Stalin taking Finland and Poland, poor Poland, Franco taking Spain, Great Britain, and France declaring war on Germany, Mussolini taking Albania, Stalin and Hitler signing their infamous non-aggression pact that would splinter and split all the left-leaning parents of kids I would later meet at college and beyond. My own folks, peasants and proles, knew next to nothing about the left wing or right wing of anything but chickens. But they did know right from wrong. Politics to them had something to do with money and power, which, in white Mississippi, were one and the same. History and truth are so easily misconstrued. Even dates, names, facts, and figures can lie. Oughts and ought, figures of figure, all for the white man, none for the nigger. Depending on who's doing the dating, doing the naming, doing the figuring. The telling of truth is the poet's proper domain, and in the head-whipping nations of this darkening, fact-ridden world, people still look to poets and the music they make for light, sweet light, illumining everything, everywhere. If it's true that in this alleged 1939, the New York World's Fair, World of Tomorrow, ran for five straight months, and that TVA, Tennessee Valley Authority Electrification Project, got the Supreme Court go-ahead, and that TV in the U.S. was first broadcast publicly from the Empire State Building, covering the opening of that same World's Fair, then it's equally fair to imagine Coleman Hawkins in that crowded year. In October, the Golden Gate Bridge closed down for repairs, while on the 11th day of that same month, Hawkins, just back from a rewarding stay in war-hungry Europe, repaired to the RCA Victor New York Studios with some musical friends and cut body and soul, just like that, in the shadow of the Empire State Building. You can even picture him slouched in front of one of those weighty old condenser boom mics, surrounded by smoke, suspended and hatted, thinking something like, well, let's see how what I'm feeling is going to come out sounding this time so we can get this session wrapped up and get back to the gig and really do some blowing. After the take, he probably remembered how he'd performed this Wee Hours ballad better a hundred times before. I'll get it down yet, he told himself, but this will have to do for now. And children, that was that. When the record came out, saxophonists all over the world, hearing it and sensing that things would never be the same, started woodshedding Hawkins' impassioned licks in their closets and on the stand. Why do you have to go and do that? 
Of course, everybody fell in love with it. My father would play it, take it off, play something else, then put it back on. This went on for years. What was he listening for? What were we listening to? What did it mean? What were all those funny, throaty squawks and sighs and cries all about? I knew what a body was, but what was a soul? You kept hearing people say, well, bless his soul. You thought you knew what they meant, but really, you could only imagine, as you must now. You knew what they meant when they said, bless her heart, because you could put your hand to your heart and feel the beat, and your Aunt Ethel sometimes fried up chicken hearts along with gizzards, livers, and feet. But a soul was unseeable. Did animals have souls, too? Did birds, dogs, cows, mules, pigs, snakes, bees? And what about other stuff like corn, okra, creeks, rivers, moonlight, sunshine, trees, the ground, the rain, the sky? Did white folks have souls? Was a soul something like a breeze? Something you couldn't picture or grab, but could only feel like you could the wind off the gulf when the day cooled down, or the way the ground would tremble when the train roared past the street from where we lived? Thirty-nine, forty, fifty, a hundred, thousands, who's to say how many rosy-chilled Octobers have befallen us, each one engraved in micro-moments of this innocent utterance, electrically notated, but, like light in a photograph, never quite captured in detail, only in essence. Essence, in this instance, is private song, is you hearing your secret sorrow and joy blown back through Coleman Hawkins, invisibly connected to you, and played back through countless bodies, each one an embodiment of the same soul force. All poetry is about silent music, invisible art, and the clothing of time for the ages. Oh, thank you for reading that. Such a, such a beautiful okay. piece. Well, thank you. <laughs> That's the opening essay from uh, his book, Al Young's book, Drowning in the Sea of Love, which is uh, filled with uh, musical memories that uh, follow your life. Coleman Hawkins uh, invented jazz saxophone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you knew this, but a lot of people don't. Uh, when Mr. Adolph Sax invented the saxophone, he, he, he sent out a public declaration that he did not want people of African descent touching his instrument because it was too delicate. He invented it for uh, symphonic and classical players, and it required a delicate sensibility to to execute it properly. And the irony of historical irony is that when people think of a saxophone now, they usually think of somebody black, you know, (laughs) playing it. But it was was, um, was, uh, um, Coleman Hawkins who actually gave us what we think of as the, the saxophone sound and vocabulary of today. Uh, when the saxophone first broke into popular music, and which was jazz in those days, uh, the way of playing it was that was in a, a staccato, like yakety sax manner, that kind of emphasis. And he said he just got tired of sounding like that, so he just changed it into those 
mellifluous lines that we think of as being proper saxophone player. Yeah, long. He invented that, yeah. you know? <laughs> we, we just have no idea how many individual uh, performers, and musicians, composers just injected something new into... Yeah, when somebody that came was such a transformative musician, yes. he transformed saxophone so 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 much, it's hard, it's hard to yeah. hear his work to realize how groundbreaking and... That's and, right. But it's the boy. The beauty of body and soul still comes out. That, yeah. that solo still transports. Yeah, and they had to force him out of Europe. You know, there were a whole bunch of Americans who really did not want to come back. But yeah. the war was on, and the State Department said you got to get home. And so uh, he kind of had a had a, a, a guardian angel. Yeah. Yep. People looked over him. He, he was in the right place at the right time for a long time. And you know, he had that first uh, sort of bebop big band. That had Charlie Parker in it, and ah, oh, who else was in that band? Uh, Dizzy was in the band. Thelonious Monk was his piano player, and all of that. And at a time when he had to catch a lot of flack for these young playing with these young Turks. Yeah, yeah, he still sounded you know great and was making oh, yeah. records through his through his whole life. Years later, in the, in the late fifties, early when he did that album with Monk, you know, well, you needn't. Yeah, with yeah. him and Coltrane together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wrote notes for a reissue of that uh, called Black Pearls. That was a double, it was a twofer that Fantasy sure, did that, years yeah. ago. And uh, I had written in the notes uh, how much uh, Monk must have loved Coltrane because you can hear him cry out in the, in, in, in the track, you know, Coltrane, Coltrane. <laughs> so Oren Keep News came to me. He said, well, Al, you know, I've been talking to Ralph Gleason about this essay of yours and I don't know. I said, you want to break it to him? He says, now nah, you break it to him. I said, break what to me? He says, well, you know, I, I produced the session, and the truth is that Coltrane was still using drugs back then, and he was nodding out, and it was his turn to, to solo, and Monk could see he was going to fall asleep <laughs> on him, so he yelled, Coltrane, Coltrane. But he says, we're going to leave it in like you wrote it, because you have poetic license. It's a very, very touching story. Wow, that's a, that is interesting. Yeah, um, I love the the record that Copen Hawkins made with uh, with uh, the Ellington Group in the early sixties. Oh yeah, as well. yeah, yeah. Still, he was he was he was not much for the blues. Coleman Hawkins, very interesting when you de- deconstruct him and his style. I mean, he could play the blues, but it was a rather dry form of blues. He was a melodist, and he was he was he was, he was really a complicated. Guy who always wanted a little bit more than everybody else. He liked to wear socks that cost thirty dollars. You know, back in the nineteen thirties <laughs> and stuff like that. If everybody else was getting uh, twenty dollars, he wanted thirty dollars. You know, he, just he was wanted, the man. Yeah, he was the man. That's right. <laughs> um, there's also that incredible recording I come back to a lot. Picasso with just oh like, yeah, Norman Grants put him up to that. Put him up to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he wanted to do it. He had been in Europe long enough to realize that uh, what he was playing was regarded as art music and that he should be treated more respectfully and, and should be uh, enabled to pursue uh, more ambitious uh, forms and was tuned into you know, the painting and all of the stuff that was going on at that time. Mm-hmm. It, it, it leads me back to um, Elvin Jones, Another Detroit, the, the, Another, all the Jones brothers. Yeah, all the Jones Detroit brothers. Well, right? Yeah, I used to catch them as a teenager at, at World Stage, uh, uh, which is another story we'll get to. But uh, Elvin Jones, on the occasion of his 70th birthday, was on 
Terry Gross is fresh air on NPR. I used to work on that show. Yeah, and she said uh, at one point, uh, in his later years, uh, Coltrane became very uh, abstract and, and, and sort of disorienting. Did it, did it throw you off when he, he started playing like that? He said, playing like what? He says, you know, abstract. And he said, baby. He's one of the few people who can call Terry Gross baby and get away with it. He says, I'm from Detroit. And she says, well, what does that mean? Just abstract ain't no big thing. So we used to go to uh, down to the Detroit Institute of Arts, and they had Matisse, and they had Salvador Dali, and they had Picasso, and they had all of those abstract painters. I can do abstract. We could all do abstract. And I'm out there laughing because I knew what he was talking about. Because when I was growing up, the musicians, the uh, playwrights, the uh, dancers, the people who had anything artistic going, the painters, we all hung out together, and we all shared vocabulary, and we all thought that you were supposed to know at least a little something about each of these mm-hmm. arts if you called yourself an artist or even a fan. Yeah. And the standards were, were a lot more rigorous in those days. Everything pops up everywhere, but jazz, one of the messages I want to leave um, this program with is that jazz was a conduit into the the greater world Mm -hmm. for us in the same way that, say, Marxism was for some people or Catholicism was for others and so forth. It opened up a universe of references Mm -hmm. that, and there were enough musicians with varying views of what they were doing. And... The beepoppers were pretty articulate, uh, mm-hmm. not as articulate as, as their uh, successors would would be. I mean, now you'd ask a jazz musician anything, and you got to listen to a lecture on something because <laughs> they all have great opinions, and they've all been have MFAs, and yeah, yeah, they've studied this stuff. I've heard uh, somebody was talking about a. About West Montgomery. Yeah, yeah. Who they said, you know, a very bright man, but he was a little different than uh, some of the musicians because he was much more of a, a working class yeah. gentleman. I think he did plumbing work and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. And uh, he said, uh, contrary to what many people might think, that, you know, the uh, uh, most jazz musicians were, uh, you know, a little studied in the arts and, uh, yeah. and uh, were pretty sophisticated uh, people in that. Point. That's absolutely right. Yeah. I know. Uh, Charlie Parker was talked about as you know hung out in libraries a lot. Was, Charlie Parker uh, read co- continuously. Yeah, uh, you saw the piece in there. Uh, I, I forget what I what I called it, but it's uh, it's it's about when I was cons- I was supposed to write the movie on Charlie Parker and Max yeah, Max yeah, Roach was supposed to be the consultant. Oh wow! Yeah, and uh, Bird always had a big uh, a brown bag of paperback books, and you know he's reading Aldous Huxley. He'd be reading. Uh, Russian history, you know, Islamic stuff, uh, novels. He he just read. Yeah, yeah. And they all they, they were all like that. And that was a period that opens onto a greater stage. Uh, I come from a working class household, but I learned to read when I was three because uh, my parents, who were eighth grade graduates, read to us uh, and encouraged reading and, and gave you. 
uh, magazine subscriptions, and my mother would take me to, to shows. For example, I remember we went to see uh, Darkness at Noon, and, and we went to see it because um, Edward, Edmund G. Robinson starred in the stage version. Oh, wow. And she went to see him. She didn't know anything about the play. (laughs) But they were using language that in those days would shock the ear, you know, the S word and the the F word and stuff like that. And so afterwards, my mother said, I was in uh, junior high at the time, she says, what do you think, old boy? Which is what she called me. I said, it's pretty intense. I said, I didn't get all of it, but I know that, you know, politics and people weren't treating each other right. She says, yeah, and the language they were using, I got to be careful the kind of stuff I expose you to. <laughs> but they were they were upwardly mobile working class people who wanted you to read. And if you remember, the old uh, Penguin paperbacks, and uh, which pioneered in, in the, you know, the 25-cent paperback, yeah. their slogan was, good reading for the millions. And the idea back then, and everybody forgets that America was a completely different place in the 40s and 50s, far more progressive place than, than it is now, or is depicted as, as being now. Yeah. And people were for the people in those days. Mm-hmm. They figured, you know, I had aunts and uncles who were always, you know, reading some weird uh, paperback on political theory or history or something like that. They got it because they could. If it was twenty-five cents new, but they could get it for a nickel if you go to a certain place, you know, <laughs> uh, in Detroit. And uh, I grew up like that, where where you just anything that came your way, uh, you gobbled it up because because yeah. yeah. we had been told that this was the key. We didn't quite understand how that was the key, but knowing stuff, you know, was <laughs> was the key to, to freedom. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it's. I was looking at you know talking. You're talking about uh, the music schools, or not music schools, but the, the, the music that wasn't school. Yeah, in Detroit, and I, I'm not sure that's uh, still a, a given. Oh, it's anymore. not there at all. Yeah, I mean, we were. God, we were so so lucky. Yeah, uh, the instruments are actually put in your hands. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And we had good teachers, and yeah. I I alternated between the band and the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got into bass, uh, which I'd never played. Their main bass player in the orchestra, uh, they were going to do uh, Peter and the Wolf, and uh, he got sick and c- couldn't make it. And so, um, Mr. Krejci, Mr. was it Mr. Krejci? Uh, anyway, he came to me and he said, uh, "You you can read bass clef." And I said, "You know." He says, "Well, you got to play the bass." I said, "I can't play the bass. You're going to have to learn to play the bass because <laughs> the thing is in two weeks." And uh, they brought special, you know, people in and. Showing me where to put my fingers and how to do that. And lo and behold, I made the gig. Wow. Boom, 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 boom. You know, that kind of thing. That was the high moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And when they played uh, uh, An American in Paris, mm-hmm. that wonderful tuba passage that goes, da 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 That was me back there. That's great. That's great. What do you? I mean, what do you think about uh, the United States today and the, and the way we've dissembled the music education and education in general? I think we're foolish, completely foolish, and uh, we will pay for it because culture is is one of your strongest uh, possessions. It's it's really is. It's. As one arrogant British poet told me in London one night, had we only produced Shakespeare, 
we'd still have a leg up on the rest of the world, that kind of thing. <laughs> they understand that this is a force that goes out. Yeah, yeah. And I just think we're so uh, benighted and wrongheaded in our priorities. Yeah, for, I mean, for all the... For all the chaos we've we've given to the world, the fact that the United States is still well known for its, its great film and its, and its great music, uh, it's it's uh, it's not supported in the way for for the, the, the you know the powerful tool that it kind of is or the you know the powerful we communication. Put, we have put six trillion dollars into the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, six trillion dollars, which could have just completely remade the republic. Yeah, and. Don't get me going, but I still I'm still in, in fighting from inside the arts, and yeah, I, I still yeah. think that that's that's part of the artist. What do you do as job. a teacher the, these days? Uh, I teach a seminar in the fall at uh, California College of the Arts, which is what it sounds like. They have a, the mother campus is in Oakland, not far from here, as a matter of fact, and the uh, the satellite campus is in San Francisco, and I teach in San Francisco. Architecture, design, painting, sculpture, uh, textiles, it goes on and on. Their MFA in writing program lets me do whatever I want to do. And so I'm trying to get their grad students back into creativity and and off this careeristic uh, cake baking mission. Uh, I'm really down on so-called creative writing these days because there's very little that's creative about it. You can go from one coast to the other and find a perfectly formed story, poem, essay, memoir, and so forth. But there's no electricity. There's no juice because it's, it's, it's been re- reduced to formula. Yeah. So uh, I teach a succession of uh, seminars. They always have different names. Last year I taught one called Kinds of Blue in which we not only looked at uh, Miles Davis' uh, the uh, book on... Uh, uh, called uh, uh, Kind of Blue yeah. uh, by Ashley Kahn was required text. And we looked at blue in terms of the blues form and blues lyrics, but we looked at Domier Smith's Blue Period, uh, J.D. Salinger, uh, portions of Blue Highways by William Least Heat Moon. Uh-huh. We looked at the, the, the word blue and, and, and its strangeness in the English lexicon. You have... On the one hand, blue laws and blue movies and blue language. On the other hand, you have blue blood and you know, <laughs> out of the blue. And what does blue really symbolize? Yeah, and then we really looked at the actual color. Uh, and uh, um, in color acquisition, as human beings acquire color, uh, blue is the last color that we get. First comes uh, black, white, red, then green, then yellow, mm-hmm. and then. Blue. If you and some cultures don't make it to blue, and some cultures are all over blue. Uh, Russian and Russian, there are twenty-two words for blue. Mm-hmm. So a poem of mine, like uh, uh, when I talk about the color blue uh, at the beginning of something about the blues, I quote a poem from part of a poem that you're probably familiar with, and a linguist friend of mine, Dan Sloven, who's a retired psycholinguist, quite world-renowned, and he's an old junior high friend. I got a bunch of friends that I never <laughs> lost. Uh, he said that this would never work in Russian. I, and, I, and he explained why. It's, it's because uh, there's just so many words for blue in Russian. 
But uh, this passage reads, sky blue, ocean blue, lake blue, ice blue, blood blue, vein blue, neon blue, flame blue, periwinkle blue, steely blue, nipple blue, royal blue, true blue, moon blue, midnight blue, mountain blue. You get the idea. It goes on quite a ways. And we just looked at um, uh, blue from all kinds of angles, and they got assignments uh, to deal with different aspects of, uh, of blue. How do you find the students? How do you find this generation of students? Uh... They are hungry as ever for something, because they're getting from me something they can't get from any, anyone else. And the wonderful thing about teaching writing and literature in an art school is that there's no English department. And so they're surrounded by creativity because people are doing all kinds of things. And I try to coordinate some of my assignments that force them to interview painters or filmmakers or uh, photographers or uh, designers uh, to see what they can extrapolate. Uh, in, in the spirit of Elvin Jones, you know, going down to the Detroit Institute of Arts, because that's how we learned about stuff. We would, yeah. we would read things on architecture, there used to be a magazine called uh, Seven Arts. It was a quarterly, and it was one of the first of those paperbacks that cost like 75 cents. I mean, they were getting uppity because when, when you laid out 75 cents for a paperback, uh, that, was, that, that was costing you a little bit. But Seven Arts came out quarterly, and it, it, that's what it did. It, it just had uh, pieces that addressed the different arts as, as people saw it in those days. Yeah, it's, I, I think... It, uh, it's people that often uh, find the the arts today to be exclusionary in some way, and, yeah. and not for them, only for intellectuals or things. That's like that. right. Yeah. But I came up with the last. I think I was from the last generation that really did liberal arts the way liberal arts was intended to work at the University of Michigan. Uh, when I went up there in 1957, through stayed through the beginning of 1961, and. Um, you were expected to synthesize, you know, t- botany, math, uh, art history, anthropology, uh, Russian, French, Spanish, you know, it went on and on. And uh, the idea was to draw conclusions from these different disciplines that were applicable to other disciplines and to life in general. And I was taking Russian in 1958, it must have been. And uh, I was living at East Quad, which was an engine school, as we called it. Uh, all the engineers with slide rules. And mm-hmm. remember their khaki pants, which they put the crease in by sticking these metal uh, contraptions in the, uh, in the pant legs. You know, to, mm-hmm. Then you hang them when they're wet and, and they're creased. You don't have to iron them. But they would put these horrible notes on my door saying, if you think Russia is so great, why don't you go and live there, you so-and-so commie, such and such. And it was quite a dangerous thing. One year later, Sputnik went up, mm-hmm. and they all started taking Russian, and the whole <laughs> thing changed. And so you got the idea of just how ephemeral all of these fashions and attitudes were. Yeah, yeah, communism today is so tied into the Cold War and everything. Yeah. But I interviewed uh, Sonny Rollins a few years ago, and he talked about as a... Uh, as a young child, uh, his grandmother uh, marching down Lenox Avenue with him in the Communist Day Parade. Yeah. And, uh, you know, especially for an African-American in that day, you know, the Communist Party was, uh, you know, much more open to, uh, you know, equal rights for all races and things yeah. like that. And, uh, 
I could see where it would be, you know, very uh, alluring for uh, yeah. for you know minorities who weren't given a fair shake at all in the United States in that time. That's exactly right. Uh, when when Richard Wright uh, left the Communist Party, he said it really was like being pulled away from a family because it was his first introduction to a unified uh, vision of the world. Mm-hmm. It, everything had its place, so, you know, if you, as long as you remained a good Marxist-Leninist. You knew where, where to put things, and you were on your own when you left the church, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So uh, all of those ideas, just in, I always thought that this was what this was what it was about. And then the game changed uh, after Sputnik went up. Specialization set in, and specialization is killing us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I describe myself broadly as a generalist. I think the world needs generalists as well as uh, specialists because the specialists only talk to each other. And we don't know what they're talking about. Uh, in another seminar uh, called uh, Art, Science, Silence, uh, we used a book called uh, Science Matters. Uh, Robert, Robert Hazen is one of the, the uh, editors of it. And it's a book uh, that's targeted for uh, people who don't know much about science, just the general reader. But to make you into a, a responsible citizen who can vote on issues that require some knowledge of science, for example, should they put a nuclear reactor in your neighborhood? Uh, should there be a bio uh, uh, conversion factory up the street? That kind of thing. Well, you have to know a little something in order to vote intelligently on those. And we took principles from that book. For example, early in the book, uh, there's a section devoted to Newton. Laws of Motion, and my students, my MFA and writing students at CCA had to take uh, one of the the, uh, the Newton's uh, Laws of Motion and convert it into a poem or a story or uh, a literary statement of some kind, and uh, they did wonderfully. I got them out of the uh, literary illusion uh, field. In other words, what you learn in writing schools now is to, to write like other people and to refer to other writers. And what is that? You know, where, where, where's, where's life in this? <laughs> and so this forces them to, when you uh, look at uh, the Newton law that says that a body remains at rest until it's uh, forced to move by an outside force, <laughs> they can convert that immediately into a, they realize you're talking about dramaturgy there. You know, something is happening. It's not going to be business as usual. That's why there is a story. or yeah. That's why there is a poem. Um, so I'm just old enough to, and, and have been through enough, that uh, it dovetails into a nice teaching uh, strategy. Uh, nobody knows all of these different people like I do. <laughs> you know, they say, how do you know all these poets? And all? I said, I'm old, man. I've been out here a long time. <laughs> I said, if you, if you stay out here, you'll, you'll know everybody, too. <laughs> That's great. I'm a huge the film buff as well. I write about film. You talked about that you did some script work for Poitier, no. Cosby, and, no. and Pryor. Three. Yeah, that's right. What, what were you doing with them? 
Writing scripts, uh-huh. writing, uh, it, it, it all kicked off with, Sidney Poitier sent for me. Uh, he wanted me to uh, work on one of his black exploitation films that were all the rage in those days, Uptown Saturday Night and sure. Let's Do It Again and See, all those. There's three doing, of them with uh, him and Cosby. Yeah, and he was doing the third one, which came uh, to be called Piece of the Action. But Piece of the Action. But at the right. time that I was working on it, didn't have a title. and uh-huh. my, my job was to come over to Sydney's in the morning in Beverly Hills and sit in his study. Is that the boxing film? Uh, yeah, the action, yeah, yeah. They're uh, Jimmy JJ Walker, yeah, they're boxing, yeah, all, yeah. all foolishness, it yeah, all stops out. <laughs> and uh, he would dictate to me, you know, what he wanted, what, uh-huh. what the storyline he conceived of. Um, in classic Hollywood fashion, when he, he met me with his in those days, it was the fashion if you were a, a big movie star, you had one of these uh, uh grad students in film, you know, from. Mm-hmm. UCLA or USC or from, you know, uh, uh, NYU, and they would be your assistant, but they would also be your spokesperson. You know, uh, Poitier would say, uh, uh, refresh Al on my achievements, uh, you know, <laughs> Richard, this kind of thing. He would run, run down the list. And um, Sidney said, okay, before we enter this, I want you to know that everything about the script is from me. The story is mine. The characters are mine. Uh, all of the dialogue is mine. Everything is is me. And I said, "Well, what what do I do?" Sidney. He said, "He said, well, you can put some of your stuff in there too." Except he didn't say stuff. Uh, but we worked on it for a while, and then he, uh, I was put in what they call turnaround. Yeah. That is, um, he hired Richard Wesley uh, to finish the script. Richard Wesley had done the previous okay. movies, yeah. and I don't know why they fell out and he brought me in, but uh-huh. but I made a lot of money. I mean, the money uh, enabled me to you know to write. Nice. Then uh, Bill Cosby uh, read my novel *Sitting Pretty*. It was my third novel, uh-huh. and wanted to make a movie of it. And uh, in fact, there still uh, exists. Uh, a full-page ad in Variety in which he announced uh, oh. that uh, he and uh, First Artists, mm-hmm. which is a company that had been formed by um, Barbara Streisand, uh, Paul Newman and his wife, uh, who else was in on that? Poitier was in on it. They were trying to be like the, the, the original First uh, United Artists. United Artists with yeah. Pickford and Chaplin and everything. Yeah, they, yeah. Were, they were doing their stuff through Universal. That was like their big label. friend of mine's father, I think, his his novel got adapted for one of the Paul Newman films that, that really? was done, Harry and Son, I think. Yeah, through the, yeah that sounds right. Uh, yeah, uh, Raymond DiCapiti, Yeah, father, wrote the original story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, you know, you know and um, the paperback of the novel came out and has mm-hmm. up in the top Soon to be uh, a major cover. motion picture. Soon to be a major motion picture starring <laughs> Bill Cosby. Well, it never happened, but uh-huh. uh, we renewed the thing for several years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm I'm pretty happy with with my Hollywood thing. <laughs> then then Pryor sent for me. Yeah, you know they wanted me to. Uh, what was Mr. Pryor like? <laughs> uh, that was the period when he was uh, uh, really being abusive to himself. Oh, really? It was the same period after after he just burned himself. I mean, tr- another true genius. And, yeah. yeah. But he was the biggest box office for uh, Universal at that time, which was headed up by Tom Mount. Yeah, 
Silver Keith. Streak was a it was yeah, a big hit with yeah. him. And, yeah. and uh, Tom Mount would say, well, I can't meet with you today. I'll, uh, he'd been a fan since college because he'd read my first novel, Snakes. Uh-huh. Uh, he had been one of those, uh, what do you call it, uh, the organization that Tom Hayden helped to, to find it. Uh, Students uh, for a Democratic Society. Yeah, SDS, yeah. yeah. Uh, SDS. And uh, here he was, this big-time, you know, Hollywood mogul. And he'd say, I can't meet with you today, Al, because i, I got to go out and hold Richard's hand. You know, uh-huh. they, would, they would tolerate all this and just go out and try to get him in good enough shape to shoot the next, the next stuff. Wow. And he was not very friendly to me. He, he, he didn't give me, I had to really fight for... Uh, Credit, which I never got for the movie, but again, it paid well, and so... Which movie was this? It was called uh, Bustin' Loose. Sure, yeah. I think he uh, they had to stop filming that, because he had the, the yeah. accident where he lit himself on fire right That's in the right. middle of that. That's yeah. exactly right, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it was it was an exciting... But you know, in those days, you just took this stuff in stride. The world was so crazy that it's <laughs> only in retrospect that you wonder how you made it through all that stuff. But they'd, they'd, they'd call up and they'd say, can you come down to Hollywood? And they say, oh, sure, we can do that. <laughs> so it was, it was quite an exciting period. Yeah, yeah. There was, uh, I'm a, a big fan of 70s film. Yeah. I, only recently did I catch up with uh, Poitier's first directorial film, uh, Buck and the Preacher, the yeah. Western. That's, that's, quite, that's, that's quite a movie. That's quite a movie. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I never got the credit, but it should have. Yeah, I was, I was surprised that, uh, how uh, you know exciting that was yeah. for a film that, that uh, has, seems to be a bit lost on the, on the public you know, at this point. Absolutely. Um, it, was, it was a wonderful period because uh, all the stuff that I experienced uh, during that period uh, turns up in an unexpected way in Seduction by Light, my last published novel, which is a novel about Hollywood. I thought it was going to be about a revenge, you know, the writer type thing, but it ended up being about uh, domestic, you know, because those were the people with whom I bonded yeah. what, most what year, readily. What year did the, the novel come out? 1988. 88. Yeah. Uh, how come you've, you've sort of uh, left the novel behind at this point? Well, I'm still working on a novel. I, uh, I don't know. Maybe I wasn't as interested in... In, in telling that stories in that way, yeah. but I'm still working on one and, and, and hoping to finish it within months now. Oh, well, yeah. what, what's the uh, the background of that? Uh, it's called a, uh, a piece of cake, and it's a, a sequel to uh, Sitting Pretty, oh. but it's set between 2001 and uh, 2008 with mm-hmm. the what do they call it? The economic crisis, the depression, the, the, the new depression. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I call it, and uh, it's. Uh, Sidney J. Prettyman at that time, he's, he's very quite elderly. Uh, he and his buddy uh, Willie G. go in on a lottery ticket as kind of a joke. And they uh, win around the same time 9 is happening. And uh, they win all this money. The epigraph to the novel is, money won't change you, but time will take you on, you know, James Brown. <laughs> and uh, the idea is to, it's a panoramic novel that looks back at the American century you know, the 20th century and mm-hmm. everything that led up to 2008. And uh, in, this, in this novel, I get a chance to, through these characters, and it's a comedy, but that's the only way you can get Americans to look at reality is you have to make them laugh. Uh, like John Stewart every night, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it's just looking at, um, at, at the proposition. Can two old black guys uh, who get a lot of money in their 
uh, de declining years, will that change them very much? Mm -hmm. and, and so they go in two different directions. Um, it's, it's quite an interesting story. Yeah, so yeah. Sounds, sounds great. Yeah. yeah. For me, in the last... Uh, you know, a couple of decades or so, I've uh, really enjoyed the the sort of uh, emergence of a lot of female artists. Yeah, uh, Nicole Mitchell, I think, yeah. is out here yeah. now playing. Uh, she's got a new record out based on Octavia Baker's uh, work. Uh, Octavia, you know. Octavia Butler. Is Butler, that, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought you were that's Butler. what you meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is her second uh, book based on, or second uh, recording based on her writings. Um, but that that's a that's an ex, you know the, that's an exciting element that hasn't yeah. you know been somewhat repressed over the years in jazz music. It's you know been somewhat of a male domain. You know? Oh my goodness, yeah, yeah, except for you know, and hypocritically too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, you uh, remember that uh, Mary Lou Williams actually taught uh, Errol Garner and oh, really? Bud Powell and Thelonious Monk. Yeah. You know, she'd, she'd bring them up there to her, to her, to her piano studio and show them stuff. Yeah. You know? She was amazing, though, just the breadth of... of uh, Age 14, she was arranging and doing all that yeah. stuff. She said she showed some stuff once to Art Tatum. He came through town, and she showed him a, a run that she did and, and told him not to show anybody else. <laughs> Turned up on his next album. You know, not, there he was. You knew you were... Around Alice Coltrane as well, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. Whoops. Alice, uh, uh, Alice McLeod yeah. uh, was the cousin Ernie of Farrow. Ernie Farrow, that's right. Yeah. And uh, Earl Williams used to, they used to play gigs. They had a trio. Yeah. Uh, and when they did rehearsals, uh, I asked Earl if I could bring my Wollensack and, you know, and record it and make announcements and all that. And I was really flattered one day when, when Earl said, said, Alice, and Alice in those days was skin and bones. You know, she was just this skeleton <laughs> of a person, but such a wonderful player. Man, such a player. Yeah. yeah uh, really soulful, you know, quality that she pulls out of that. She said to him, uh, bring that boy with that tape recorder with that deep voice. I, I want him to announce this stuff. You know, and I thought, wow, what an honor. Yeah, yeah, the the record she made after uh, John's passing, or, you know, had some gorgeous records. With yeah. the, the harp and uh, and everything. Yeah, really, she particularly is. Uh, I'm touched by her, by her music. You know, they were crazy people. Uh, did you ever read the um, <laughs> when uh, Robbie Shankar died uh, I, on my website? I I, I uh, linked people to an interview with um, Robbie Shankar. Uh, in which he talks at length about John Coltrane uh -huh. and their relationship, and uh, it's worth looking up. If you if you go to aliyong.org and you go to the search thing, you put in Ravi Shankar, you'll see it. But uh, he he loved John Coltrane, but he said he was always a little it was always a little bit edgy because uh, when he, he'd meet up with these great jazz musicians, inevitably they would be you know earthy and given to uh, the habits that he didn't approve of, you know. Yeah. Uh, but he said, John, uh, uh, I could tell, was changing, and he assured me, was, you know, he was leaving drugs alone and uh, focusing on music and so forth. And uh, he's just, in that statement, he just opens the door and says, keeping my fingers crossed for you, John. <laughs> you know, what, when you think about John Coltrane's habits, they were pretty modest compared to a lot of musicians. 
Alice said that he would fall asleep every night in their house on uh, Long Island. Uh, he, had, he had a telescope, and out there in, where they lived in Long Island in those days, there wasn't light pollution, and so you could actually see the skies. And so Train would uh, sit up there for hours and play his horn and look through the telescope and, you know, <laughs> and listen to stuff. And, and he said he'd stay up all night sometimes. Just. Yes, in a stellar space. That's yeah. the title of one of those last records. Yeah. yeah. It could have been uh, connected to that. But it was Charlie Hayden who had to get his son ready for uh, a performance life. Uh, Robbie had kind of, he didn't reject his father's stuff, but you know how sons are. He didn't want to sound like his dad and so forth. And he really had trouble. Uh, and he had no reason to, he's, it's like um, Hank Williams' son. Uh, he was born a millionaire. I mean, Coltrane was rich. Yeah. I mean, all of those record dates, he's the most recorded <laughs> You know, jazz artists, I think, yeah. in history. Yeah. And uh, so Robbie didn't really have to do anything, but when he wanted to go out and work, it was Charlie Hayden who brought him up, you know, brought him up to snuff. Personally, you know, gave him tutorials and so forth. And... Can I get you to read uh, one more piece, maybe, of course. before we, uh, we head out? Uh, prelude to a Kiss at the end here. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm a huge Ellington fan. That was a, a major obsession in my, in my jazz life. That, well, I'm not uh, surprised. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I started, he started to come to me in dreams, and uh, I started to go to his show in dreams. Sometimes I'd just talk to the side men and would talk about Duke or whatever. But, uh, uh, yeah, to, to really uh, listen to that is to really, you know, meld with one of the great minds of the century his yeah. music you know? oh absolutely yeah. I, I, that's indisputable Prelude to a Kiss Duke Ellington composer Ben Webster 1953 take one in foreign streets just beneath closed eyelids horns squawk and traffic melodizes itself in Ben's gruff glistening whisper and there's no telling what always went on underneath that tight-fitting hat of his. The brute, as he was called, hardly ever went bareheaded. You'd see him in the Negro nights, eyelids fluttering as if in a dream. What is this thing called color? It's hard to imagine anyone but Ben Webster coming up with that sound. That, I got it bad and that ain't good. That, sophisticated lady. This prelude to a kiss. In the darkness of a 5 a.m. vision, you picture the very sound he's wrapped around, the luminous layer of your being, the other body, visible only to Sears, just as Ben's country glistens for listeners alone. Take two. Barely touched elegance. This is what jazz is. This. You grow up with your elbows sticking to jam left on a kitchen table set for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. 
kind of sound. And then somebody lets you taste something that makes you into a gourmand for the rest of your music-hungry life. Didn't your grandmother tell you where it said in the Bible that the eye isn't filled with seeing, nor the ear with hearing? Finally, you're seductively reduced to essences, and then to essence. Since Ben Webster's come to your drowsing ear more than once in a dream, the world is a lot more bearable. You know, Ben was a bear of a man, prone to violence. People who knew him will tell you, always looking for a fight after he'd gotten himself a snootful. But what does this smattering of information matter? All he plays is what he loved. In foreign streets, Stockholm, Copenhagen, Amsterdam, Munich, Tokyo, Nice, just beneath closed eyelids, horn squawk and traffic melodizes itself. That kiss Ben's been helping you work up to now is becoming as unnecessary as a midnight splash in the sea. You drift back to that movie house where Ben played piano in that silent movie house in Amarillo, Texas. Staring at the screen, you listen to the story he plays of how he'll go and be gone with the wind, working early with Dutch Campbell's band. Did he know he would settle decades later in Holland? Then it was W.H. Young, Lester's dad, Jap Allen, Blanche Calloway, Benny Moulton, Andy Kirk, Fletcher Henderson, Benny Carter, Duke Ellington, Jay McShann, jazz at the Philharmonic. But it wasn't harmonious. Ben couldn't make a living. So he flew the coop and immigrated, sort of, departed to foreign soil. You enter this giant's castle, a brute, and come out tingling like a poet, in time to be flown back home for a giggly snooze and surrender all your crowns and your thorns. And the fluttering, which runs deeper than eyelid level now, goes on and on and on. The John Coltrane Dance Fly on into my poem, Mr. Love Train. I know the air isn't all that green, but the sound, the sound, the sound above all else, hovering there, vibrating my chair, making the tree dance, the sunrise astound. The sound surrounds us, the Alabama surge, Little Rock, Philadelphia, PA where that sound must have smoothed stones and cleansed the veins of many a Quaker. Hurt's song, the tag-along, I know sound cures. In this fickle sea of sound that churns and waves on all sides of my becoming, let the song be you, Mr. Love Train. In this long day of spirit, let song be night, and the showering of notes, stars, in that beloved firmament. Mm -hmm. 
This last piece is from Al Young's CD release with bassist Dan Robbins, titled The Sea, The Sky, and You and I. That's Dan Robbins playing Coltrane's Giant Steps beautifully behind me. I'd recommend going over to alyoung.org to discover more about the writer, and you'll be well served by finding a copy of Drowning in the Sea of Love, for starters, from Al Young. Thanks again to Al for being such a gracious and welcoming individual and for sharing his knowledge with us. That's it for this Fun to Know. You can find past episodes at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. And you can leave us illuminating feedback at our Fun to Know podcast Facebook page or email at fundanopodcast at gmail.com. And that's always with the numeral two. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you return for more Fun to Know. Thank you.